Well, right after college, as many of you know, I lived for several years in um, London, in London, England. And one day, I, I came home from work, and I opened my door and started looking through my mail. And uh, in the pile of mail, um, I pulled out uh, this, this envelope. And I, you probably can't see it very well, but this is a letter from the Queen of England. I am not joking. You can see the postmark from Buckingham Palace right here. So I was astonished to see this letter. You can see it, was, it is unlike any letter I had ever received, nor is it like any letter I have received since. It is large and heavy and weighty. Uh, my name is written on the front in calligraphy. It says Corey Widmer Esquire, which I've never been referred to before, which I guess in England is a, is a, is a title of of high uh, esteem and social ranking, which clearly they do not know actually who I am. Uh, and so I, was, I opened it carefully. I dropped everything, stopped everything I was doing, carefully opened the letter, looked at every detail, read through it carefully. I mean, when you get a letter from the queen, you give it your full attention. Well, it turns out it was not actually a letter from, <laughs> from queen asking me for my advice or something. Uh, it was just, a, it was an invitation, which is pretty, still pretty impressive, an invitation to a garden party at Buckingham Palace, but it was not because he liked me and wanted me to come. It was because I was accompanying my boss, uh, who was this guy named John Stott at the time. But nevertheless, it was so special and meaningful and such a unique letter that I've saved it for uh, 20 years. Friends, last week we saw this vision of the risen, reigning, glorious Jesus who was holding uh, the seven stars, the planets in his hands, who was the ruler of heaven and earth, who was the king, who is the king over the universe, who is king over all things. And these two chapters, Revelation chapter two and three, is actually an extension, a part of that first vision of Jesus, because what this glorious and reigning King Jesus begins to do is he begins to write letters. He begins to write letters to his people, to his churches. And when you get a letter, if you were one of these churches and you get a letter, not just from royalty, but from the king of the universe, you better stop and listen. You better drop everything. You better handle it with tremendous care. You better give your full attention to what the king of the universe has to say to you. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to pay serious attention to these letters from Jesus. Because yes, they were written to particular congregations, seven particular congregations 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor and a little part of what is currently Turkey. Yes, it was letters written to them. But friends, because this is Holy Scripture, because the Holy Spirit is inspired in this text, these are also letters for us. This is actually a letter from Jesus Christ, written for us, written to you. If you've ever wanted or wondered, wouldn't it be great just if Jesus could speak to me, if I could know what he has to say about what I'm going through, this is literally a word from the risen, reigning King Jesus for us, for you. So pay attention. As it says in verse 7, let him or her who has ears to hear, 
Let them listen. Listen, friends. These are the words of the risen Christ for us. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, do just kind of a quick overview of what these seven letters are all about. And then I'm going to dive into the first letter, which is the letter to the church of Ephesus. So let's just first do an overview of what these letters are about. We ended last week with this glorious vision of Jesus. Like we said, Jesus is the exalted king over all. And what is so striking and what we were reminded of again with the reading that Katie read this morning is that where we see Jesus and what we see him doing is we see him standing among the lampstand, the seven lampstand, which we know is symbolizing of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which in turn represent all the churches of every time, the churches of Christ. And so what that tells us is something very striking, that Jesus is actually very near to his people. He is very close to us. He is walking among us. That Jesus, like we said last week, is not some absentee landlord way up there in heaven somewhere, but that Jesus is actually through his spirit present, very involved, conscious of every challenge, every struggle, every suffering, every problem of us, of third church, just as he was for the churches in the first century. In verse 2, it says, I know Jesus is intimately aware of the issues of his churches. He has passionate interest in his people, not because church is Jesus's hobby. It is literally his marriage. It's, it's his heart. It's his love. And so he is deeply interested in his people. And so now out of his great concern for his people, Jesus writes a letter to each of his churches addressing specific problems that each of the churches are facing because he loves them. And he wants to coach them. He wants to root them. He wants to encourage them and us on. And so let me just show you with this slide here what the structure, because each of the seven letters has a, each of them follows a very specific structure. Each of them does this exactly. So first, in each of the letters, there's an address. And in each case, Jesus is always addressing the angel of the church, as you can see in this section, chapter two, verse one. Now we're not sure what that means. Angel literally means messenger. And so it could simply mean that Jesus is addressing one of the, literally the human messenger, the, one of the pastors of the churches, uh, but it also could be that Jesus is referring to some sort of heavenly angelic being, a reality that is assigned to each church. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, it just could emphasize the idea that there was always something more going on than meets the eye. And so there's the address, okay? Number two in each letter, there is some reminder of a characteristic of the vision of Christ from chapter one. Each church is reminded of a different characteristic of that vision. Number three, in every letter, there is a commendation of what is going well. Well, in every letter but one. Um, with an exception, uh, where, where nothing is going well, most churches have at least one or two things worth celebrating. Uh, fourth, there is a criticism or a correction of what is going badly. Two of the seven churches don't actually get criticisms. They only get, you know, happy gold stars. But the rest have something that Jesus wants them to work on. Fifth, in every letter, there's an appeal from Jesus to endure, which includes a warning of what will happen if they don't and a promise of what will happen if they do. And finally, each one ends with this exhortation to listen, to heed the voice of the Spirit. So we'll see that pattern in every single of the seven letters. Now, when you read through the seven letters, as I invite you to do this week, because we're only going to look at the first one and the last one, sort of like a sample, uh, what you're going to see is that each of the churches are struggling with different things. Some are apathetic because they are rich and affluent churches, and they have become comfortable and apathetic. 
Um, some are struggling with, um, some are morally compromised. You know, they're, they're still visiting pagan temples and sleeping around with, you know, with, with, with sort of the pagan prostitution cults. So some are morally compromised. And third, are, it, others are remaining faithful to Jesus and we're suffering harassment and persecution. But the common message with all seven of the churches is this, Jesus is calling and inviting his people to stay faithful. Endure. Faithfully and patiently endure. He warns them, it's never going to be easy to follow me and actually it's gonna just get harder and worse. And the strong temptation will always be to compromise, as we know it was for these early Christians, the terrible and violent persecution of the Roman emperor Domitian. And they were tempted to either outright deny Jesus to avoid persecution and death, or just simply to compromise and just kind of join into the spirit of the Roman age around them. But in each case, in each letter, Jesus is calling them to faithfulness, to patiently endure, to overcome, and he promises a reward to all those who can faithfully and patiently endure through the suffering and the sorrow and the tribulations of this life. He promises the new heavens and the new earth. And so this opening section, what it's doing in chapter two and three, it's actually setting up the whole main tension of the entire book of Revelation, the whole storyline of the book. Because you always need some tension you need some narrative tension for a good plot, right? Every great story has narrative tension. You, you know, is the hero gonna make it? Is Bilbo gonna make it to the mountain? Is Ray gonna, you know, take down the emperor in the end? Every great story needs some serious narrative tension. And the great narrative tension of this story is this, will God's people endure? Will they make it? Will they inherit the new world? that God has in store. That's the great tension. That's the great storyline. That's the great plot. And I would say, friends, that's the great plot, not just of this book, but the great plot of your life, the great plot of the world. So let me just make an application here before we jump into the first letter. I want you to know, I just, I've been thinking about this week, and I just want to just touch on this a little bit because of the relevancy of this moment. I want you to note that Jesus addresses churches. He doesn't address individual Christians. He doesn't address aggregation of individuals. He addresses churches. The context for the Christian life, I want you to hear me on this, the context for the Christian life is always community. It's always the church. I love this great quote from Eugene Peterson in his book on Revelation, this chapter, he says this, the gospel pulls us into community one of the immediate changes the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, are instead of my, us instead of me. Isn't that a great way to put it? It's a grammatical conversion when you become a Christian. Sin isolates us. Sin separates. Sin separates us from the community of the Trinity and separates us from the community of each other. But the gospel restores community as it was meant to be, both with God and others. And now any tendency towards privatization and individualism in, is an actual falsification of the gospel and a contradiction of the true faith. And this, I, the reason why I'm, I wanted to pause on this is because this is a huge challenge to us because we happen to live in the most individualistic society in the history of humanity. And it was hard enough to practice your faith communally before the pandemic, 
But man, it is even just so much harder now. I mean, let's just face it. In this time and place that we're in right now, you can just kind of do your own thing. You know, I mean, who who wants to go to the effort of, I don't know, putting on a mask and signing a waiver and showing up for a group or a service or who wants to wake up and get online at a specific time with other people or reach out or connect with a brother and sister or Christ? I mean, why go through the effort, especially when you can just like listen to a podcast of a famous preacher or, or have your own little quiet time or you can just finally like tune into that church down the road, which is way cooler? You know, seriously, I just want to encourage you, as hard as it may be, as inconvenient as it may be in this moment, to resist isolation, resist privatization, resist religious consumerism, picking and choosing what meets your spiritual needs. Resist the temptation to make your spiritual life just a private individual thing because Jesus addresses not individuals but his church. That's where we find Jesus. But here's the problem. The church is annoying. (laughs) Is it not? The church is full of people. The church, the real church, the actual congregations like the church of Ephesus, like the church of Smyrna, like Third Church, or any other church you might go to, is not at all this perfect ideal vision of the church that we all might want to actually be in. The real church is full of annoying people. It's full of difficult people. It's full of uh, people you would maybe never choose to be friends with. It's full of critical people. It's full of people who might disagree that you might profoundly disagree with. It's full of people who might say and do unkind or offensive things. It's people who make mistakes, who mess up, who are totally unlike the holy Christ-like people you would expect the church to be. And this is this, friends. This is us. And I just want to encourage you, before you say, like, good riddance, I'm done with the church, or I'm done with this church, look at these churches. These are the churches of the New Testament not yet 50 years old, already degenerating, (laughs) such that Jesus had to step in to exhort them to change. These were not pristine, wonderful churches. No way. The truth is, the churches of the book of Revelation, as for us, are not like airbrushed living rooms from the Southern Living Magazine, where everything is picked up and beautiful because no children live there. No, no, no. Real churches are like the messy family rooms that we all actually live in, where everything is strewn about, where things are out of order and food is on the countertop and mud is on the floor and holes are in the wall and lots of improvement needs to be made because unlike those glossy magazine showrooms, this is what happens to churches where actual people inhabit them, not showrooms, but real people, real life. And as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous, and as far as I know, that is still his game plan, this will be our reality. The church will continue to be an embarrassing community to those who are idealists and moralists. And yet Jesus is with us. And he loves us. And he's for us. And he's for his church. He calls us to address our blind spots, to repent and to endure. So I just want to say this. I'm sorry that I took on a long tangent here. But if you're not a Christian, I just want you to remember, as John reminds us here, that churches are the lampstands. They are not the light. Jesus is the light. We're just a bunch of messed up, broken people who are trying to figure out and know and follow Jesus. So don't just make your decision about Christianity based on the church. Make it based on Christ, the one who makes the church and loves the church and is seeking to make the church more like him. And if you're a Christian, prize the church. 
as broken as it is, strive to make the community a priority even in this really isolating time. Show up to one of our outdoor services. Tune in online. If you're listening on a podcast right now by yourself in some isolated place, will you reach out and find a church with, that is nearby? Will you find a parish group or attend one of our classes? Commit to each other. The church is where Jesus lives. You can't have Jesus without his people. Okay, that's my tangent. Are we ready to get into the letter to Ephesus? Okay, let's look at this letter. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, most important city of the Western Turkey, probably about 250,000 people. So really big for the time, urban cosmopolitan center, world-class city. Uh, Ephesus was the home to the great temple of the goddess Artemis. You can read about that in the book of Acts, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul ran into some major trouble in Ephesus when he got in trouble with the silversmiths there. You might remember that in the book of Acts. And we know that, that Paul had such a successful ministry there that he planted the church in Ephesus, stayed there for three years as the first pastor, and later passed leadership off to a protege named Timothy, hence First and Second Timothy. So this is a church of great importance, great influence in the world at the time. And so Jesus, after identifying himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, Jesus first commends them. Okay, remember each letter has a commendation. What does Jesus commend this church for? Look with me at verses two and three. First, he talks about their deeds. I know your deeds and your hard work. The Greek there for hard work means diligent labor. This is a busy, hardworking, energetic congregation. They took their faith seriously. They were committed. They were involved. Lots of programs, never lacking in volunteers, full calendar of events every single day and night. This was no lazy church. This church was marked by 40 years of dynamic ministry since Paul founded it. Well done, Jesus says. Second, he commends them for their endurance. Verse two, I know your perseverance. Verse three, you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We know because of the temple of Artemis, Ephesus was a tough place to be a Christian. Because of Paul, Christians were not popular there at all. But these folks were not quitters or compromisers. In the face of a hostile place, they held fast and held on. Well done, Jesus says. And then third, he commends them for their orthodoxy, their orthodox faith. Verse 2, verse 6, their faith was very well-defined and well-defended. They opposed and exposed false teachers. They were doctrinally sharp, morally pure, theologically careful. They knew there were certain practices that Jesus hates, which is a strong word, verse 6, like the immoral and idolatrous practices of the Nicolaitans, and they stood strong against them. Well done, Jesus says. So here you have a portrait of a very impressive church, a church that was energetic and strong and sound, productive in ministry, persevering in trials and pure in doctrine. Seems fantastic, right? Model of congregational life. And yet, verse 4, Jesus says, this I hold against you. How'd you like the king of the universe to say that to you? This I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. In all their activity, in all their labor, they had lost their love for Jesus and their love for each other. Forsaken, that is a word that was also used for divorce in marriage. This image here is of a married couple who over the years and all the activity and busyness and work of raising kids and going through life slowly drift apart so that all affection and passion ebbs away. 
And that can happen in a marriage. That can happen in a friendship. And that can happen to a whole church, even in just a generation. Here they were up to their necks in church activities and responsibilities and debating heretics and defending the faith and maintaining high moral standards and never missing a prayer meeting or a worship service. And they lost their love for the Lord and for each other. Is that really possible? Is it possible to be doing all the right things, believing all the right things, living all the right ways, and completely miss and lose the point of it all? Yes, and I know because it's happened to me. It's happened to me, friends. Busyness at church becomes a religion. Duty itself becomes your devotion. Your work for Christ becomes a substitute for your worship of Christ. You are committed but cold, faithful but frigid, steadfast but internally a stone. How does this happen? You know, the, the, the famous pastor Earl Palmer, I think, gets at this in a really helpful way. He says this, a man or woman is first united with the Christian church because of having discovered and believed in Jesus Christ and his love. But after a few years of being a Christian, that person becomes a leader in the church with very heavy responsibilities for the fellowship, but something happens along the way. That person who, because of giftedness and hard work, may now stand at the vortex of church politics and decision-making, experiences a subtle shift in style of life. That person is adrift as a disciple and finds himself or herself motivated and nourished by the organization or by controversy or by ambition to hold power. The first love has been replaced well, perhaps no one was aware of the replacement. The first love has been abandoned, and in its place is the starchy, high-cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the soul. Does, does that scare you at all? It should. Because let's be honest, third family, we are a lot like the church of Ephesus. You know, I don't know your hearts, only Jesus does. But what I do know is that we too are busy with lots of activity, persevering in the faith over generations, theologically orthodox. But Jesus knows our hearts. And the scary thing about this is that the cold church may quickly become a dead church. Do you see that in verse 5? Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand from its place. And what we know of history is that this actually happens at Ephesus. The church that was once the center of the Christian movement, this lively and vibrant church, literally no longer exists. There are no active churches in Ephesus today. This is a lovely sanctuary. Well, I mean, what, if, what, if one, what, if, what if one day this sanctuary is just a lovely concert hall? Just a nice museum. Because the scary truth, and I, I'm going to say this real bluntly, the scary truth is that your inner coldness to Christ or to other people in your heart may actually be endangering the future of third church. So we got to hear what Jesus is saying to the church. Because what he's saying is very clear. Everything that you might be doing, anything at all, minus love equals nothing. Love is the supreme mark of spirituality. I worry about this right now, friends. I see these partisan culture wars fueling hatred 
and bitterness among Christian people, this zeal for truth and passion for morality, and frankly, let's be honest, a fear of losing power is twisting much of the American evangelical church into a community of hostility and contempt. And we see the exact same things happening that Jesus warns of here. Orthodoxy becoming narrow legalism. Morality becoming angry entrenchment. Hatred of the practices of others like the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. I see an American church that is being drained of love. And Jesus' warning is severe. What shows the legitimacy and the truth of our faith is not doctrinal knowledge, not spiritual activity, not moral high ground, not how much you give away, not how much you do, not how much you accomplish, not your giftedness, not the emotions that you feel, not the disciplines that you practice. Those things in themselves mean nothing. The only true measurement of a life with God is love. Everything minus love equals nothing. So what do we do? We listen to Jesus. And listen to what he says. What is his prescription? Three things. First, he says, remember. Verse 5, ESV says, remember from where you have fallen. Kindle your spiritual memory. John Bunyan, the Puritan, says, be often calling to mind the very beginning of grace. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember the delight of the gospel. Remember the truth of the pure love of Jesus for you, a sinner. Remember where you were without him. Remember. Second, repent He says, verse 4, confess the cold and lifeless places in your soul. Renounce everything in your life that is marked by pride and self-sufficiency. Admit the many things in your life. I do this almost every day that have become more important to you than Jesus himself. Admit it directly to God. You don't know what to do about your cold heart? Tell it, say it to God. I've got a cold heart and I don't know what to do and I'm scared. Will you make my heart warm again? He stands ready to forgive and to restore Remember, repent, and finally resume. He says, do the things you did at first. He's not saying get busy because these people were already busy. This is an appeal to return to what actually matters, a nurturing of love of God and neighbor. This might mean returning to simple practices of sitting with God, scripture meditation, prayer. It might mean nurturing your life in the Christian community, what Augustine called the school of charity, the school of love. You don't have to wait to feel love again. According to Scripture, love is a set of choices to orient your life towards God and neighbor. So it's easier to love your way into a new way of feeling than to feel your way into a new way of loving. And so just like you might reach out to an old estranged friend or take a step towards your spouse after a long season of distance, return to the one who loves you. He is waiting. Remember, repent, Resume a life of love for God and neighbor. And the promise, says Jesus, as we hear in verse 7, is to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is fascinating because in Ephesus, in the great temple of Artemis, there was a vast and beautiful garden with a tree in the center of the garden that was used as a shrine. It was a place of, that symbolized all the hopes and ambitions of the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus says to the people of Ephesus, now, you know, here's a, here's, there's a different tree, a better tree, 
It's that tree that was at the heart of the garden of God in the very beginning, and it is that tree that will one day be planted in the heart of the new city that is to come. So he says, look, friends, hold out for the real tree, the better tree. You know, you know like that, that, that old um, marshmallow experiment with kids where you give them one marshmallow and you say, if you can sit here and not eat this marshmallow for five minutes, I'll give you five more. It's kind of like that. Jesus is saying, look, hold out for the true tree. Don't just indulge yourself in the stuff around you that feels so real and good. I know that life is hard, and I know that you often just want to throw in the towel and just do what you can to enjoy life in the here and now. But I am inviting you to endure. And the promise is that endurance will be worth it. It will be worth it because Jesus will be there. He'll be there when all tears are wiped away and all wounds are healed. When you wake up from the long, dark night and see the beauty of the new day, Jesus says, hold on, hold out, hold fast, endure. It is worth it. And so this is the final invitation. Not just try harder, but to look to Jesus, the one who has died for people whose love has dried up. People like you and people like me. Look to the one who wrote this letter, wrote the letter to the people who gave his life for his people. He reveals himself freshly to them and to us, saying, look again at the apocalypse of Christ. See this fresh vision of the one who loves us and is for us. Let your eyes be open to see him, the one who is love incarnate. As Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling Let's pray that Jesus can do that. I just want to invite you for a moment to admit, if you are feeling convicted today, that you have mistaken work for Jesus with a relationship with Jesus, that you have confused beliefs about God with intimacy with God that you have mixed up striving for Christ with actually knowing Christ. Would you just take a moment to admit the coldness of your heart, that you've lost your first love, that over years and years you have just slowly drifted away and you don't even know your way back anymore. Would you just speak to God now Confess it to him, repent, turn around, and ask him to make your heart warm again. Lord Jesus, visit us with thy salvation. Enter every cold, dry, hardened heart. We thank you that you stand ready to receive us. You stand ready to restore us, to forgive us. That you desire that we, your people, would endure to the end. And that you promise to give us all we need to do so. So we pray for your help this week. Help us not to lose our love. In Jesus' name, amen.